Welcome to the Wild West Podcast, where today I'm very excited to welcome my guest, Randall Reeves. Randall is a sailor who is returning today, Saturday, October 19th, 2019, from a truly epic undertaking. He's been at sea by himself on his sailboat for a full year. Well, it's actually closer to 13 months, sailing up and down the entire globe. So to give you a sense, he circumnavigated both North and South America and also Antarctica. So if you look at his route on a map, it looks kind of like a big figure eight. And what that means is that he left San Francisco last fall. He headed south to the bottom of South America, where Cape Horn is. He crossed Cape Horn, sailed clockwise around Antarctica, back up to Cape Horn, then crossed over to the east side of South America, went all the way up the gut of the Atlantic Ocean to essentially Greenland, pretty close to Greenland, then caught a weather window that took him through the Northwest Passage. And then from there, he went around Alaska through the Bering Strait and then back south to San Francisco. So he's getting there today. It's a pretty wild trip, right? Randall, as you can imagine, had all kinds of adventures, which he chronicled and talked about in a blog that he kept updated uh, almost daily while he was away. It's really interesting. It gives you all of these insights into the life of a sailor and a person who is constantly busy fixing things and doing maintenance on his boat and just kind of surviving in this wild environment. And it gets really interesting when he gets into the Arctic. That's kind of my favorite part. He's pushing this aluminum sailboat through the Northwest Passage by himself, and he starts plowing into icebergs, and there are all these little mishaps that he has to deal with along the way. There was actually a moment when he smashed into an iceberg, and he thought to himself, like, oh man, if my hull is damaged, I might have to stick it out in the Arctic for the entire winter. If I do get stuck, if, I'm, if I can't get out of this maze in time, then I'm stuck there for the winter. Right. And in the Arctic, a winter is 10 months. And I wasn't prepared for that. Randall and I caught up on the phone a couple of days ago when he was just off the coast of Point Reyes, so north of San Francisco in the Pacific. He's a great storyteller, and we cover a lot of things. We cover the challenges and surprises of his journey, how he coped with being alone in the middle of the deep ocean for months on end, which is pretty interesting to hear about. Uh, We talk about the difficulties of circling Antarctica. It sounds wild down there in the Southern Ocean. Uh, We talked about, you know, what he anticipates will be tough about reintegrating into his life in Oakland when he returns. That's going to be his next big challenge is figuring out how to kind of get back into the rhythm of society after being a man alone for the last year. It's a great conversation, although I should say real quick that the audio can be a little muffled at times um, because Randall was talking on a satellite phone. But if you guys want to know what it's like to spend a year alone at sea, Randall's story is fascinating, and he's a great listen. We'll get to our conversation in just a minute, but first, this brief message. All right, we're back. Now on to my conversation with sailor Randall Reeves. Thanks very much for agreeing to come on the podcast and talk to me, Randall. It's great to, it's great to be able to talk to you. Well, Greg, thanks for the invitation. I really appreciate it. It's nice to be home. Uh, and it's nice to now, instead of having to plan and pursue, to be able to talk about uh, the voyage. Yeah, so you, as I understand it, you have been kind of hanging out um, outside of the bay for the last several days. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I arrived in Drake's Bay, uh, I think, four days ago now. And 
<clears throat> I'm, I'm early, right? I, I had intended to get uh, to the area around the 19th, but I'm a sailboat, and one cannot always plan uh, dates of his arrival yeah. uh, when on a wind-driven machine. And more than that, I, I could have left. I left from Dutch Harbor, Alaska, in the Aleutians, and sailed across the Gulf of Alaska to here nonstop. And that's a really tricky bit of water, especially this time of year. It's, it's for us, it's it's fall, but it's already getting on winter yeah. up up in that latitude. And so I, it was time to leave. But pretty much every local I met in Dutch Harbor when I was there said, uh, "You should leave now, <laughs> or be stuck here for the winter." So I wanted to get out, and that's why I'm early. That's why I, how, the reason I got to San Francisco, the area early. And so, Randall, you know, before we get too deep into, I definitely want to talk about your voyage, obviously. But uh, before we get too deep into that, can you just tell me a little bit about your background as a sailor um, and how you how you first became interested in it and started dabbling in it? Uh, my father was a merchant navy captain uh, for a number of years before I was born, and, and although he'd retired from the sea by the time I came around, there was still a lot of marine paraphernalia around the house, the sextant, the charts, his uniforms, and so kind of this whole. Um, uh, love of the ocean uh, comes really from being raised in that kind of way. We didn't buy our first sailboat until I was in high school. Okay, but I can I can remember specifically that day, that first sail, when the wind filled the sails and the boat heeled over and charged off. And I thought, oh boy, wow, this is really you know this is the thing, and that was really kind of where it started. I just loved sailing, and I loved doing everything about sailing myself. Uh, I have a sister. She used to come along. I really, really, really hated to share the steering or the trimming of the sheets with her. It was that was terrible. And, and I used to actually, when Dad went out on business trips, I would uh, quote unquote borrow the boat and uh, sail down the river, uh, San Joaquin River, down to uh, San Francisco and sail around here. Just dream about sailing under the Golden Gate Bridge and out to sea. But I didn't get to that until much later in life. Uh, in college, I met a guy named Bernard McKessier, hmm. who for the longest time held the record for the longest solo nonstop sail. He participated in the first race around the world uh, via the Southern Ocean, solo and nonstop. And when Bernard had made it about three-quarters of the way around, he dropped out. He decided that he was too much in love with the sailing to complete the race, and he just kept going and going and going. He went one and a half times around the world without stopping over the course of, I think, uh, nine or ten months. And that was the record for a long, long time. I met him, did a, an interview with him for my college radio station, and he really had a huge impact on me. He was incredibly self-sufficient. Yeah. Um, he knew what he needed and what he didn't, and he had carved off everything on the boat that he did not need. And I just really admired that uh, that uh, that strength, that intelligence, uh, and I knew from that point that I wanted to do something like this. But it took, as you can tell, quite a number of years to actually get to it. Yeah. What was the what was that process like? Um, because you were, as I understand it, you were uh, general manager of a restaurant or multiple restaurants for a while, and then worked at Open Table as well. So that's right. How did you kind of hang on to that idea or that dream? you know, through the, the decades between college and, and now? Yeah, I think the answer is I didn't. I think, you know, life got in the way, and, and I developed a career and, and, and moved in that direction. But at some point, uh, after I had left restaurants and worked at Open Table for a while, it, uh, I think it, it all sort of came up when I bought my own first little boat, a little 24-foot 
Columbia that I sailed here in San Francisco Bay, and, and that kind of all began to fill in. I don't think I sailed much at all in the uh, into, in those intervening years. And in fact, I didn't do my first solo ocean crossing until 2010. Mm-hmm. I did a, a partial circumnavigation of the Pacific in a 30-foot boat, leaving from San Francisco down to Mexico, French Polynesia, Hawaii, Alaska, and home over a couple of years. And that really, that really bloomed this kind of, oh, wow, I love long-distance ocean cruising idea again. I got home and realized, oh, I'd like to keep doing this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so you did that solo, is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And about 15,000 miles over a couple of years. Lots of stops. You know, it wasn't a nonstop of effort like the, a big chunk of this figure eight was. Yeah. And so how do you begin to start planning and actually, right, devising the plan for an expedition like this? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I think that that two years in the smaller boat going around the Pacific gave me the backbone of experience that I needed for the planning. I didn't do a passage of longer than, say, 25 to 28 days during that two years, but I got the physics of it, right? I knew how I eat and and how much water I drink and what I like to eat, and I got used to living without what we consider to be modern conveniences like hot and cold running water under pressure and microwaves and things like that. And then it was just a matter of figuring out for the figure eight voyage, well, how far is it? Really, you leave from San Francisco, you go all the way to Cape Horn, all the way around the southern ocean to Cape Horn again, all the way up the Atlantic, all the way across the top of Canada, Alaska, back to San Francisco. How many miles will that end up being in a straight line? And then how many miles will that end up being once you've sailed it, because you don't sail in a straight line? How many days is that? How much food do I... It it just... It was was a couple of really, really large Excel spreadsheets, quite frankly. (laughs) Uh, And a lot of fun. I think the planning stages... The planning stages really came in two stages. One was finding the right boat, which took the longest time, and then figuring out the accessories, you might say, the food, the water, the the tools, uh, the spare parts, uh, all of that. You have to be able to take care of yourself. Right. You have to be able to fix whatever breaks when you're underway. So you know, thinking through all of that was, was quite a lot of fun. And, and very difficult. Finding the boat was really challenging because uh, the figure eight voyage goes to, as you well know, the extremes of the world, the very far south, as far as you can go south, pretty much, and pretty much as far as you can go north. Uh, and what makes the figure eight voyage unique is that those two environments, the south and the north, are very different. Um, they have very different demands. Uh, if, you're, if you, for example, look at the bottom of the globe, you see Antarctica, and there's a big donut of water around Antarctica. We call it the Southern Ocean. Mm -hmm. The wind all blows in a clockwise rotation around the Southern Ocean. It never hits land. It goes around and around and around. The storms go around and around and around. All water, huge waves, huge winds. And so you need a super strong boat that can handle, um, you know, a big wave environment. And then you get up to the north, and it's the opposite. It's an archipelago, archipelago of islands, shallow passages, narrow passages, poorly charted, and pack ice. And very little wind, so it's just a, it, you need again. You need a very strong boat, from, but from a different perspective. And so, those finding the right boat, finding a boat that could handle those two challenges well, that could make the miles in the south, and could take the icy impact in the north, that took forever. Hmm. Okay. Uh, where, where'd you end up finding the boat? 
Or how did you actually uh, select actually, the type of boat that you would, you know, and the material that you wanted? Yeah, I, of those two environments, Southern Ocean and the Arctic Ocean, it was the Arctic Ocean that, that gave me the most fits. Uh, I'd been sailing quite a while by this time. I'd done ocean passages. I had a sense that I could handle the South if I had the right boat. But the North, I just couldn't figure out. I mean, shallow water and pack ice, just as a blue water sailor, it was difficult to envision making that work. So actually, I went to the Arctic in 2014 and crewed on another boat going through the Northwest Passage Mm -hmm. by way of practice. It just happened to wake up one morning and this boat that I'm speaking to you from today, that did the figure eight voyage, was anchored next to us. And I looked at it, and it was just an ideal. It was an aluminum boat, flush deck, sloop rig, super simple, super strong. And I was very attracted to it immediately. The couple that were sailing it at that point weren't having a lot of fun, because the Northwest Passage is a lot of hard work. Uh Um, And so I offered to buy the boat right there in the middle of the Northwest Passage. And they intelligently declined. I'm actually glad they did at the end of the day. Um, I went home, continued looking for a boat. About a year later, I got a call from them saying, we're in Homer, Alaska. It took us two years to get to the Arctic on purpose. They had overwintered in a village called Cambridge Bay on purpose. They'd gotten to Homer, Alaska. They pulled the boat out, put it on the hard. They said, we're tired of being cold. We bought a van. We're driving to Mexico. If you'd like the boat, here it is. <laughs> so that's how, I, uh, that's how I got this boat. Interesting. How did you come? Sure. Up, how did you settle on the route? Yeah, I, I, another good question. So the the easiest way to describe the figure eight voyage is it's an attempt to circumnavigate the American and Antarctic continents in one season solo. Right. But if you're a sailor, what you twig immediately is that that incorporates two very historic sailing routes. Yeah. So from Europe to Asia via Cape Horn was the only way trade goods got from those two, you know, between those two places until the Panama Canal was built. So the Southern Ocean routes are, are, are well-trafficked and, and, and well-known and really tough. You know, going around Cape Horn is considered to be kind of the, the Everest of sailing. So that's one route. And then the other through the Northwest Passage is a much shorter route from Europe to Asia, and has been a route we've been searching for since, I think, the 1400s. Yeah. Only recently, because of climate change, has it become more or less consistently open, at least for a short period of time. So that was really, as a sailor, I knew both of those routes from a historical perspective. And and I wanted to do, I, I have wanted to do the Southern Ocean route a long time, you know, since meeting Bernard Bottesier and, and getting to know that group of sailors and their stories. The, the Northwest Passage is much less familiar to me, but it made such a beautiful figure eight loop on the, on the globe. It was like, oh, that's excellent. I wonder if that can be done. Hmm. It's super long. It's almost 40,000 miles. I mean, to do 40,000 miles in a year is huge for a, a small boat like Mo. Yeah. Yeah, you, so initially you tried in, is it 2017 you set off, but then you hung it up in Tasmania, is that right? That's right, yeah. What was going on? So this is my second attempt, this successful attempt is my second attempt, and I left San Francisco September, early October of 2017 and sailed south for Cape Horn, 
I was in the Indian Ocean on the way to Australia to pass under Australia on the way to Cape Horn again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was between South Africa and Australia above a little group of very high islands called the Crozettes. And we were overtaken there by a very large storm. And one unique thing about the Indian Ocean is that it has a lot of current. When the current and the wind are traveling in the opposite directions, the seas can be very quickly, very, very large and very steep. And in this particular gale, the seas were steep and breaking. And I'd get on top of the wave, and for as far as I could see in either direction, this wave is crashing over onto itself. And so I, I kind of knew pretty early on that it was just a matter of time. There was really... I tried to sail through it, but there was really no way that I, that I know of to successfully do that. And we were knocked down a couple of times over the course of the night. And then just as the sun was coming up, a very large wave picked the boat up and actually threw it down Ooh. on its port side. So this boat weighs, what, 35,000 pounds? What is it? Maybe six, seven, eight cars in, in weight. And the, the, the sea literally threw it <laughs> from the top of the sea to the bottom. And when we hit uh, a window in the pilot house here, burst, it just shattered, and put, I'll say, on the order of, say, 100 gallons of water in the boat. And that was easy enough to pump out. More, more importantly, the water flowed over my entire navigation station and knocked out pretty much everything. Uh, all of my communications devices, except for a little texting device, uh, were knocked out. Everything except the chart motor and that satellite tool were gone. And it became pretty clear that I wasn't going to be able to continue without a stop in Tasmania. So that took about a month. By the time I got there, I got everything repaired and ready to go again. It was very late in the season. I would have been passing under Cape Horn during southern winter, and even if I had been successful at that, I would have arrived in the Arctic just barely on time, just barely. Um, And I had proven that I had uh, been able to a court disaster Enough on that first those first two tries that I didn't want to I didn't want to assume that I could have a perfect run the rest of the way so I decided to sail home. Real quick before we get into the actual voyage, talk about the weather and what kind of uh, considerations you need to be making in terms of the route that you chose and the timing of it to make sure that the to ensure that you're catching some kind of fair or favorable weather and currents in these different locations that you're going to. That seems like a big piece of this. Uh, it's huge. You're right. Uh, one of the unique features of the figure eight voyage is that if I do it successfully, I am in summertime for most of a year. So I leave San Francisco in October and I sail down to the Southern Ocean. And for the 110 days that it took me to go from Cape Horn to Cape Horn again, I was in Southern summer which is the best time to be in a really awful place uh, in the world. And then I I transition up the Atlantic, up to uh, the Arctic, with the intention of arriving there during the Arctic summer, because that's the only time you have a chance of getting there. There is less ice in the passages now, but a lot less uh, for little boats like mine. There's still quite a bit of ice, quite a bit of challenge. The only time you can make it through is, is in the summer, Usually August and September, you only have about a 60-day window to get through the 5,000 miles of maze that is the Northwest Passage. So, yes, the whole, the, the success of the passage hinges on that timing. You have, your boat has to be able to go fast enough to stay in that summertime uh, month or two 
around the whole globe. And yet it can't go too fast, right? I can't arrive too, too early right. in the Arctic. Otherwise, I'll have to spend the whole season. We did actually, in fact, arrive too early. I arrived in June to Halifax, Nova Scotia, and hung out for, there for a month before continuing on, partly to do refitting, and partly because I was way too early. The Northwest Passage, the Arctic Passage, doesn't really begin to thaw enough for a small boat like this until about the first or second week of August. Hmm. Then you have until about October 1st to get out. And as of now, as of this week, and here we are, you know, we're, we're in Indian summer here in San Francisco, the Arctic is frozen up again. Mm-hmm. So, Randall, the million-dollar question that everybody is going to wonder about as soon as they hear the basic headline of this story is, why did you decide to do this in the first place? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a funny question. I have delivered a number of presentations before leaving uh, on the the Figure Voyage, and I never have addressed that. Because it just seems so obvious to me, right? If you had the opportunity to sail around the world solo via a figure eight, you know, around the Southern Ocean and through the Arctic, wouldn't you? And I found out pretty quickly during the Q&A sessions in those presentations that no, in fact, there are very few other people who would want to live a year on a boat that is essentially like living inside of a industrial-sized washing machine, <laughs> uh, you know, without hot and cold running water, <laughs> without refrigeration. Uh, it's, it's a pretty rough life, but I have been dreaming of this kind of thing since I was a kid. This, this uh, I don't know, how does one explain, why do we climb mountains? Or right, like, right. Like say, because the mountains are there. Because it's there, I, that's exactly I, I, right. I think there's a lot to that. You know, why did the chicken cross the road? Because you really want to see what the world looked like on the other side of the road. That, I think, is, <laughs> is the kernel. But for me as well, there's this sense of, I love being out on the ocean. I love being in this utterly, purely wild environment. There is no evidence, whatever, that any human other than yourself is on the planet. You're in places where few other humans ever go. One of the most unique moments for me had nothing to do with big waves and storms. I woke up one morning, I think we were in the tropics. I came up on deck, and there was what looked like a hairball rolling around in the cockpit. I don't you know if you me, but a hairball would not be something I could develop. And I picked it up, and it was a bird. Now, the birds that live at sea, we call them pelagics, and they spend their entire lives out on the ocean. The wandering albatross, for example, spends 95% of its life at sea, the onside of land, and it spends most of that time flying. It is so developed to flying and flying that it can actually sleep while airborne. Hmm. Uh, it, is, it is a super efficient flyer. It doesn't even have wing-flapping muscles. It just glides. And essentially, it's surfing the top of the air that comes off the top of the waves. It's just an incredible and an 11-foot wingspan, twice my height uh, in, in just wingspan. Mm-hmm. So these birds are just incredible. They're completely and utterly adapted to being in that environment in which I struggle to stay alive. And I had in the, you know, rolling around in the cockpit was what's called a storm petrel. It's about the size of a mouse with wings. And it, too, can survive anything that the sea happens to throw, to throw at it, even well beyond what I can handle with this little bird just flapping around. But it can't walk because it's always flying and never walking. So its legs are atrophied and they don't work very well. Hmm. Rolling around in the cockpit, and I pick up this bird and I'm holding it in my hand, and I'm thinking, this animal, this creature, 
has never seen a human before. Hmm. What a wild and, and, and privileged experience to be able to, in that brief moment, commune with an animal that is that is that adapted and, and that wild. And I just I, you don't have those kinds of experiences when you're in the deep ocean, and that those are really informative for me. And then I imagine that in the true spirit of exploration and survival, you s- ringed the bird's neck and cooked it for dinner. Is that right? <laughs> no, uh, but <laughs> that's funny. No, I released it. <laughs> oh, great! I, I, I released it off into the air. Even if I had been uh, on survival ration at that point, the bird is so small. Right. Uh, that particular bird would not have made much of a meal. But no, okay. you know, it's funny. You, you say that. People ask me, do you fish when you're at sea? Yeah. And I have, um, and I don't often. Part of the problem that I have is I'm one guy without a refrigerator or a freezer. And on a couple of occasions, I've caught fish as large as I am. And I, you know, even if I cook it, have sushi, and dry a big section of it, I'm still not able to process the whole fish. Mm-hmm. Since I have a bunch of other food. On the boat, I'm not short of calories. I tend not to fish a little much. Yeah, I don't like to waste. Well, it's such a beautiful animal. You, you haul these these ocean fish aboard, like the dorado or the swordfish, and they're just um, so strikingly beautiful that it just it, it hurts to actually kill it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned being in these places that perhaps no human has ever been, and the cost of that, apart from you know, the actual transportation and and the journey to get there is that, you know, you're isolated. Um, And your your press contact, Heather, told me that at one point in your journey, the closest humans to you were on the International Space Station, not on land. Is that right? Well, I I learned that from her. Mm, That's quite a stat. I I mean, I am as far away from land as you can get. I don't know how far the space station is above us. Uh, I wouldn't doubt it. Uh, but, yeah, it, it's, it's, if the question is how do you, how do you deal with isolation and solitude, Yeah. Uh, part of the answer is I don't know because I feel pretty adapted to that. I don't get lonely in the way you might think. I mean, I don't miss television shows or pepperoni pizza, uh, you know, I just, I, I've, where I am when I'm on the deep ocean is where I really want to be. So I don't spend a lot of time pining, I guess is the word. I, I don't feel alone because I'm, I'm with the boat, I'm with the ocean, and I'm busy, right? There's a lot yeah. to do. If you're by yourself, you're, you're cooking, you're cleaning, you're navigating, you're trimming the sails, you're reefing, you're making a decision about which way to, where to head the boat, the second versus that. That hour, there's a lot to do. In fact, uh, people ask me if I read a lot of books at sea because there's, there's this idea that when you're at, on the ocean, there's not much going on. And I do carry a ton of books. I've got bookshelves and electronic books and lots of stuff that I could read and I don't because I, I'm, I'm enjoying being actively engaged with the environment and actively engaged with the boat. Sailing a boat, oh, it's like riding a horse. You feel like you're on this living thing, the way it moves through the waves, and getting it to perform at its optimum, even though it's a big, slow boat, getting it to go as fast as it possibly can, 
it was a fun challenge and it feels good. So I don't actually spend a lot of time kind of disengaging, as it were, from my environment. I got that sense from reading over your, your log. Uh, I was expecting a little, I don't know what I was expecting, but I was expecting a little more downtime, I guess. And yeah. every post is just, you are busy. You're fixing things. You're making adjustments. Uh, you're navigating. I mean, it's like there's never a dull moment. It seems exhausting. <laughs> there are dull moments, but yeah, there's, there's, there's plenty to do. Um, you know, yeah, repairs are, are a big deal, right? The, one of the advantages of this boat is that even though it's large, it's very simply designed and set up. It's really, uh, without you being a sailor, it would be really difficult for me to describe to you how perfect it is for a solo sailor, but it's about as perfect for a solo sailor as one can get. And yet, stuff breaks. It just does. When you're you're going as much as I have over the last two or three years, you just wear stuff out. You can't help it. Even, uh, you know, even the sails, the sails were new. When I left San Francisco on the first voyage, they're made here in San Francisco by a company called Hood. They're the best sails I could possibly have purchased. Instead of being double-stitched, they're triple-stitched. They're made for the Southern Ocean winds. And yet, by the time I got around the second pass and got up to Halifax, what was that, probably in total two years, probably almost 45,000, 50,000 miles of sailing, they were beginning to show signs of, of wear. It's a tough environment. So you're, you're spending a lot of time either fixing or trying to anticipate what might wear. So a lot of rope, wire and rope on the boat. The wire holds masked up and the rope controls the sails. And even though it's synthetic rope and made with you know modern materials, it still chafes and wears. And you spend a lot of time fixing line, replacing line. Yeah, a lot to do. Mm-hmm. But again, it's in, that, it's in that range of stuff that you, one, you have to do it to survive, and two... And you're a sailor. This is what you love doing. So it's it's not hard to not hard. Yeah. Well, Randall, what were the some of the biggest? Uh, there are so many different challenges and obstacles uh, and considerations that you have to make. But what are some of the most challenging moments or or sort of uh, instances that you encountered during this journey? Yeah. I, I it's a good, that's a good question, and I I, I wrestle with that because there. Are, because the two uh, ends of the world were so different. Uh, being in the Southern Ocean is, is really it's just beautiful beyond description because of the large seas, big winds, open sky. Uh, it's, it's just so amazing to be able to watch a uh, phalanx of cloud, let's say, come up over the horizon, pass over you, and then go down over the other horizon. Hmm. That just sounds silly, but this is something really beautiful about being able to see that much. This is no obstruction uh, other than cloud to your view. And I've gotten very used to having that kind of open view such that uh, it's going to be challenging to be at home again <laughs> from that regard. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of stress associated with being in an environment where you're going to face gale force winds pretty much every week. But you kind of fit yourself into that stress after a while and you get into that rhythm of, you know, a gale a week and, and you get used to that. It took 110 days to go from Cape Horn to Cape Horn. I was very happy about uh, the second Cape Horn round to turn the left and go up into the Atlantic. But I found the ice in the Northwest Passage to be much more stressful. I was extremely afraid in an area of the Arctic called Lancaster Sound. It's a big, open 
sound that is right at the top, right at the beginning of the Northwest Passage, uh, closer to Greenland mm-hmm. uh, than, than Alaska. And I knew, as soon as I did a left turn to start heading south, that for about a run of, run of about 300 miles, I'd be in ice. I would, I'd be in a place where I could get stuck for an extended period of time. The challenge with the Northwest Passage is it's really not hard. The pilotage is not difficult, but you are beyond help. Uh, it's at least six, seven, eight hundred miles between villages. There's really nothing in the village except maybe the purchase of diesel, mm-hmm. some potato chips, and a Coke. Uh, you're really on your own. You're relying on your engine almost all of the time. There's mm-hmm. much, very, very little wind up there. And I knew that this ice was going to be difficult. The boats ahead of me with crew had had somebody on the bow pulling ice out of the way as somebody at the wheel was kind of driving the boat into the ice and kind of leveling it out of the way. And then they were, you know, sticking them a day or two to go 15 miles. And I just, I'm one person, I can't do that. That was just, I found that really frightening because if I do get stuck, if I if I can't get out of this maze in time, then I'm stuck there for the winter. Right. And in the Arctic, winter is 10 months. And I wasn't prepared for that. I'm, I'm, I did not, I prepared myself to go in and out and not to spend the winter in, in the ice. So I, I, that was, it was thrilling once we got into the ice and I realized, oh, I can pilot this. It was a little like swallowing, back and forth and back and forth. Mm-hmm. But it was also incredibly fatiguing. You had to wheel for 12, 15, 20 hours a day. So getting any sleep in the Arctic all is really challenging. I slept, I think, on average about three or four hours a day for a couple of weeks. Uh, and uh, so that was, that was, I think, some of the most difficult sailing yeah. out there. And that was, and so that that is when you actually are hand steering, right? Is when you're you're maneuvering the icebergs and things like that. <clears throat> yes, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, at one point, I got so tired. <laughs> I got so tired that we've been we being boat now have been maneuvering through the ice for let's call it fifteen twenty hours. It's a lot of fun for the first say ten hours, and then it's just really tired. <laughs> and I was fatigued beyond imagining, and I finally saw open blue water ahead of me, kind of as far as I could see, although I could see some ice on the horizon, that white line you get so used to seeing. But I had open water, maybe 15, 20 minutes of open water at full speed. And I thought, well, I'm going to dash below and I'm going to take a quick nap. I'm going to take a five-minute nap. So I flipped the autopilot on, dash below, set the alarm for five minutes. And on the fourth minute of my five-minute nap, wham, we hit an ice block so hard that it the boat was at full speed, went to zero, like in, in a heartbeat. Ooh. The engine grinds right down. I, I dash on deck. I throw the engine into the car. Look for it. We have T-boned an ice block, probably the size of a truck. And I don't know how I couldn't see it, right? It was it, it, it was not on the horizon. It was just a couple minutes ahead of us. I didn't see it. And luckily, we we actually, the boat is so strong, it actually broke that ice block in two. I was... I was sure for a while that we were sinking, um, but at the next anchorage, when I got out and inspected the the hull as best I could, I couldn't even find a dent. So I, got, I got really lucky. Got really lucky. Yeah, got really lucky. And then Randall, I wanted to kind of run through some like rapid fire questions with you here. All right, we'll see how we can do. Okay, okay. what kind of communication technology and communication sort of access or availability did you have during the trip? Do you have Satellite phone access for most of it? Do you have internet access for most of it? What does that look like? Uh, it looks like this. It's 
called Fleet Broadband, and it's about as fast as you can get at sea. Yes, it's uh, satellite telephone availability, but more importantly for me, it was the ability to upload uh, large files. Mm -hmm. So you've been on the figure8.com website, and you've seen that I not only send in high-resolution photographs every day from seeing with the the daily report, I also, every few weeks, uh, send in a video. And that's, that's tough from sea. That's extremely expensive. 